This is part three of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Anything else before page 10? What I was saying, the reason I was asking the question, um, should we, is more of a question of what what are we valuing? What is what is the a high point? It seems like biodiversity, water, especially reading in the first chapter, the importance of having water in all the layers um, as much as possible for the area. Uh, it seems like that's that's the high goal. If I'm, I don't know if I'm right. I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot for my own personal goals, and. Um, I want to feed myself. I want to live in a plethora of life. I I want to have a Montana jungle. I I I want to have something that's um, massive, growies, and full of food. Um, and I want to have I want to have rich soil, rich gardens. Mag- magnificent horticultural stuff. I want to have a deep, meaningful, romantic relationship with nature. And I see, and I guess, you know, while billions of people seek relationships of so many different flavors, I'm seeking a particular flavor of relationships. So my, my end goal is what I keep thinking of as a jungle and uh, a food a food heavy jungle rich with life and I want to live in this space that's rich with life that's that's what I want and then of course you know the way that I get there is to contemplate all of the water I I, I kind of can't help but think that yeah the, the water is the key and so I need to I need to think about that first and foremost um, I think that a lot of people start thinking about the water and they want to do water catchment systems and they're like going to get barrels and pipes and and tanks and gutters and uh, things of that nature. And to me, I, it, it feels it feels contrary to the kind of romance I want to have with nature. So I I want something like when it comes to hugo culture, that's more in line with the kind of romance that I want. I mean, capturing the water, the thing with all the tanks and barrels. That will work, but I feel like I end up with a plastic-based relationship. It's it's made of petroleum things. It's it's less natural. I want I want something better. 
So I don't, I'm not thinking like the water is the end goal, although ponds and creeks are definitely a part of it. Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the jungle, the food jungle as the goal. Montana food jungle. But that's just me. Maybe other people, it's all about the water. The water is the destination. What are you guys' destinations? Mm-hmm. Kyle, what is your destination? What do you see? I'm looking for a full dirt dump. Dirt at you. I'd uh, like to have a... Uh, a little food forest and not really uh, have to do much except for harvest food and eat it and then you know spend the rest of my time doing whatever Julia yes what are you what are you what's your destination what do you want what's your end goal I, that is a good question. Okay, Elliot, who is, you know, married to Julia, <laughs> what is your end goal? Is it safe, do you think, to answer that? <laughs> hey, she left that door open, and you're standing right next to her. So, I've been set up, I is, tell you. This is your chance. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question because as you say it, I'm like, I don't know what my goal is. I know what the direction is that I'm trying to move. I don't know what the goal is. And part of that is because the idea is that, well, you sort of reach a goal and then you stop. And um, I I don't know that. There's a stopping on on a lot of this. And so, you know, the direction is to try and move in a direction, you know, move towards something which uh, promotes vitality globally, right? Not just locally, but globally. So um, minimizing carbon footprints, you know, no chemical stuff, uh, trying to minimize residues. There's the whole, you know, thinking you know, seven generations ahead kind of deal, um, you know, that feeds into that. And I think it's probably easier to describe that as a, as a path, as a direction. I like that because then it's kind of like I want to, I want to get started in this direction and then I feel confident that soon a path will present itself. And then I'm going to follow that path and see where it goes. Yes. And that has been very much the case, which is a whole other podcast in itself, if you want, on, you know, what has been going on for us. Um, Because there's a lot that one doesn't know, right? I mean, think about it this way. If you grab anybody off the street and they're like, oh, look at me, I'm a one on the Nico scale, and you say, great, you want to do these things, what are your goals? Their goals are necessarily going to be probably something which is at a two or a three on the wheat and eco scale, and that's it. And that really shouldn't be their goal, right? I mean, that that should be the next thing that they see, but you don't want them to stop there. You want them to keep moving. No, I I agree. I I absolutely agree. 
um, I think I think that uh, there's a certain bit of purple to this, and there's also a lot of art to it. To say, I I want to move in this general direction, and then I won't I I won't know I'm there until I'm there, and I might not ever get there. Like like when I'm getting close, you know, to a, a conclusion. So it's it's perpetually because part of it is is to like I want to head down this path, and I'm going to learn a lot about myself. I'm going to learn a lot about this land that I'm developing a romance with. And um, and then I'll find out. I might change my mind 176 times. And Absolutely. I, and I think that if I stick rigidly to a goal or to a plan, I am almost guaranteed sadness. Whereas if I keep it flexible and open, I might find... And one-tenth the effort, I can end up with something I love ten times more. Right. And there's also an epistemological question, I think, in terms of, you know, what is it that we know? And until you've spent some time on a piece of property staring at it, thinking about the trees, thinking like the trees, um, you don't really know how to even ask yourself where you should go and what you should do. Um as well, and so I mean, there is necessarily a journey to this. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that makes it purple, um, but you, you, you know, knowledge is cumulative, and you have to start building that knowledge somewhere. And as you build it, you may change your your mind about where you are and where you want to be. Maybe we should have a conversation about what is purple. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think that when we first brought up purple, the the very first thing we said is there's a little bit of purple in all of us. Some people are just more purple than others. And and then it's like I think I think like I I believe I said that when I stand next to my brother, I look day glow purple. And then mm-hmm. when uh I stand next to a um, lot of people in the permaculture mo- movement, I look, I look um, pretty rock solid brown, and so uh, I, I kind of feel like I'm in between. I'm in the middle, um, but I think, I think within the world of purple, there's going to be stuff that it's like I don't have a logical explanation for this piece. But I do have something about this piece I just like, and I don't know why I like it. And I get to, I get to pursue things that I like, and I don't have to justify it to anybody. And to me, that's, that's purple. And I think that there's something to be said for like, I like this direction, and I have, I am not going to be held subjected to your word goal. And I'm going to travel this path and I'll see what goals present themselves and I'll probably dismiss all of them pursuing this other thing as I see fit. And in fact, I choose 
to not even be part of your whole weird-ass goal conversation. <laughs> I mean, respect. I, I, I think that that's, that is uh, um, the best answer. I, I don't think there, there can be a better answer. I think that's, I mean, for describing what is purple in some degrees, but also, like, when we're talking about what is the goal. I think it's like, here I am. I got this piece of land. I'm going to start developing a romance here. I have some thoughts about where I'm going, but let's just see where the winds take me. But, Elliot, you were saying something about, like, I don't think it's necessarily purple. Kind of makes it sound like, you know, I don't want to be purple. Purple's the bad guys. And I, and I kind of want to say... Purple's not the bad guys. Oh, okay. I, I don't mean to say that uh, in that instance um, that, uh, that, yeah, purple is bad. Um, and my own version of purple is maybe a little different, and it's, you know, um, allowing a bit of a mystical element in. I, I, I guess the, the idea that one doesn't necessarily know what – What's going to happen is just that we can't really predict the future, and we reserve the right to, you know, change our our opinions and our choices based upon what we learn between now and then. And I, I don't see that as being either purple or anti-purple. So, uh, oh look, there's a picture of Katie. Um. <laughs> <laughs> on her hugo culture um i i kind of feel like uh um i'm i said uh plethora living in a plethora of life and um i'm going to guess that you're like that sounds nice yeah. okay and then i'm going to say um Food jungle. And I'm thinking that you're going to say, oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. And then um, those two things might show up on your property, as will ponds and little creeks and, 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 and things of that nature that, that you will have created. So as we're talking about water in the landscape, the other pieces might be more appealing than the water piece, which is appealing, but it's more like that'll be part of the greater final package. It isn't the destination. Fair? Mm -hmm. Um, Elliot, does that sound okay? Yes, I accept that. <laughs> okay, all right. So I'm going to take the same question that I started with, which um, uh, now Elliot has totally warped the question in a good way. And so, but I'm going to, but just to, to make sure everybody has a go, Katie. What's what's your response to this question? 
Oh, I am way over my head in my goals. I have a a passion for wanting to sepify a piece of Hawaii, and I have a postage stamp on it, basically, uh, as far as progress. <laughs> I'm, I am not at that level. I am not anywhere near, anywhere near that level. But for some reason, I have latched on to this mighty goal very far away from myself as if something I really, really want to try to do. Um, I mean, not that I would succeed, but that I would try. That would give it a really good try. Uh, I want to be uh, like something people could come and look at it. I want to be stable for a long, long time so that I have I can show long-term results. Um, I want to try to help the local farming community with things that they need, like way above my head goals that I I have not the ability to achieve at, at this point. All right, Tr- you know. Shoot for the moon. Shoot for the magnificence. Try, 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 try. See how far you can get, and and see if see if you can create a magnificent and beautiful thing that others have not dared yet to imagine. Am I close? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Opalin, you're the last one. Yeah, I've um, sort of been contemplating this, and I really like the concept of a journey and not a destination. Um, I really would love to cultivate uh, a food forest and and have a much closer connection with the food that I eat and not um, purchase so much. Um, and at the same time, I try to make realistic goals along that path that don't get me overwhelmed Um, because that tends to stall my progress. Um, Yeah. So, um, probably like if you had an acre that might stall you. No. 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 Um, hmm. I know that, for example, I converted a shipping container into housing for myself, and um, that was just way too big of a project. So I got out a binder and I broke it down into the electrical and the, um, you know, all the different systems that needed to go into converting a metal box into a house. Um, so having like key points on the journey, but given that I don't have an acre to play with right now, um, it's sort of, you know, going beyond the dreaming stage might, I'm not sure. See, I kind of feel like, um, for most people that, if you give them something that's like an eighth of an acre and you say, this is your garden patch, that they will get ten times more done than if you give them ten acres for the reasons that you just suggested. So, like, with an eighth of an acre, that they will make a reasonable garden. But if they have ten acres... They will spread themselves thinly over the whole 10 acres 
and after a year, they have almost nothing to show for it. So, when you said your your thing about like I got to make sure that I avoid the overwhelm, that's what I was thinking of is how like the the wise thing to do is that if you had ten acres would be to limit yourself to looking at an eighth of an acre, and then once that is magnificent, then move to the next eighth of an acre, as opposed to like, oh, I've got ten acres, I'm going to do this massive design for the whole ten acres, and then I'm going to try to implement this massive design, and ten years later I'll find that I've really accomplished pretty much none of it. Whereas... Yes, I've been co-managing 120 acres for the last decade, and we would look at the forests and the woodlands in, like, three to five-acre plots that we would work on for a year or three, depending on how dense it was, how much um, of that monoculture desert uh, needed to be transformed. Um, And so while also, like, designating... This chunk has this goal, and this chunk has this goal. Um, and a lot's been done, but not a lot of food has been grown. So I kind of, I kind of feel like, and now I'm gonna, I'm gonna step beyond what's in Sepp's book. I'm going to step beyond what's in Mollison's book. And and I've got my own philosophy set. And um, I, I feel like rather than having, like I almost feel like the phrase permaculture farm is an oxymoron. <laughs> I was just reading that article, actually. Oh, okay. And, and I, I prefer permaculture gardens Hmm. so then and then I think and I I kind of my philosophy set is kind of going towards gardening gardeners and and now it's (laughs) like you kind of need to have like a dozen people and four of them will turn out to be gardeners and so then you have four gardens and and that's so with my, I don't know, let's say artistic thought, artistic design, um, artisan permaculture, I don't know. I, I'm, I think more in that general direction than like the more property-wide design. Like here's the, the design and all of you people are now going to implement this design and you will love it. All right? I command thee to love this design. All right, now get to loving. All right? And, and I kind of feel like I prefer the idea of each person is their own artisan. And I think, I think in this stuff that we're about to read, Seth does say some stuff about that, about how the most one of the most important ingredients we need is diversity. Oh, I think I'm in that picture. Yeah, you can see me. I'm like right in the middle. Do you see me there? Yeah. I'm wearing my red shirt. 
You're staring at you see my bald spot. <laughs> that is indeed the key identifying mark. Right. Right. From that angle. And I have video from that thing. That was the first time I ever met Seth. That was the very first day I ever met Seth. And uh, I, I took video from his presentation there, and it was one, some of the earliest videos I ever put up on my YouTube channel. It's where he told the story of the, was it a newt? And he was, and he was like seven, and he and his friends had decided that it was um, a, uh, an, an alligator or a crocodile or something like that. Yeah, a crocodile. And so he was like charging his friends to look at the crocodile, um, but it was actually a newt. Anyway. Yeah, see, I'm in that picture, too. All right. Um, I'm going to go on to the next little piece. Um, he says, I had no idea what permaculture actually was then. I began reading a book by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, the founders of permaculture in Australia, and also read one by Masanobu Fukuoka an agricultural pioneer in Japan, and I felt enthusiastic because I found a lot of similarities in all three methods, especially concerning companion planting and some working methods. Eventually, I renamed my method, and it became Holzer's Permaculture. So... Um, the funny thing is, is that I think in 2012 I was asking him about um, about Fukuoka, and uh, I don't know. He went into some weird mode where he needed to bash Fukuoka, so he talked about some project that Fukuoka did that failed. And I think I was trying to ask, like, you know, something about there are similarities between his work and Fukuoka's work, and so what would be the stark differences or something like that? And and he just went into defensive mode and never answered the question. <laughs> He's just jealous. <laughs> so let's wave our hands dismissively and move along. Um. I'm about to read something from page 13. Does anybody want to talk about anything before page 13? No. Okay. All right. This is from the section called Symbiotic Interactions. The phenomenon is when legumes take on atmospheric nitrogen, the rhizobia, at their roots. When the roots eventually rot, the nitrogen enriches the surrounding soil. I'd been saying the same goes for potassium and phosphorus, but people did not believe me. Now, I could share my insights with the students. I had observed that plants take on different colors depending on the species of other plants growing next to them. For example, why does rhododendron stay red and does not turn white with certain neighboring plants? Why does radicchio remain red and does not turn brown or go lighter? 
So, um, this is going to be a big polyculture thing. I, I feel like uh, there's a lot of people who... Okay, in this picture here, do you see there is a woman wearing yellow, like four from the left? And so that woman right there, that woman is a physician from the East Coast. And um, there was a day when she told me at this event that um, uh, the rates of cancer today are 400 times higher than they were several hundred years ago. And I said, surely you mean 400% higher. And she got rather angry at me for suggesting that and so she was very emphatic to say 400 times higher and this is not a typo not a mathematical error 400 times higher so that's that's her and then Julia a physician on this very podcast right now said doubt (laughs) and Julia and I went several rounds on this and we did find information that suggested 400 but in my book we said only 100 and that that made Julia only a little cranky not as as cranky as she was for the number 400 but the proof that we found out the, the information that we found said 400 and so that also uh, so I believe that when I changed it to 100, the cranky sounds that Julia was making stopped. So the the 100 plus the, the evidence. Is this correct, Julia? Am I telling the story accurately here? They, they got quieter. <laughs> so, but there she is. That was that was the that was the gal. That that kind of got me started on that whole thing about really four hundred times. I mean, I would have believed four times or twenty times, but four hundred is is dramatic. All right, next piece. My explanation for this was that through the continuous decay of the roots, nutrients are released into the soil and are then being passed on to other plants via mycorrhiza in the soil. That is how symbiotic interaction in polycultures works. Each plant releases different nutrients at different times through decay, and each plant requires different nutrients at different times, depending on whether they flower or fruit, for example. Leaves also do this. They sweat nutrients that are washed away by dew or rain and are then fed back to the roots. If you look under a comfrey plant, you'll see the ground getting kind of dusty. Oh, am I doing a photo op there? Somebody wanted to take a picture with me? Is that what that is? I can't tell who it is. It looks like. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. Um... I don't, I, I I mean, that was back in 2009. I was kind of a nobody then, right? I mean, in the world of permaculture, I was 
probably far better known for my software engineering stuff. But I don't know. I guess some people still wanted to get their picture taken. I mean, that's kind of maybe she's a software enthusiast. Oh, maybe so. I did run into them occasionally. Um, Where is it? Those are Hoogles, right? Yes. Yes. Those are, and those, they are directed, they are, their building is being directed by Sep himself. This is from uh, Sep's website. Oh, is it? Okay. All right. So, um, uh, this, is, this is the location. We were standing here um, where Sep told me this important thing without a translator, because the translators apparently refused to translate. And uh, so, so what Sep did is, is he pointed at himself, gesturing to himself, and he says, Elka, Elka, Elka. And then he points at me, and he says, Elefanta, <laughs> Ele- Elefanta. So he just needed me to know that he thought I was fat. <laughs> <laughs> But it was at this very site where he decided to, to let me know this. Um, Moral support. Oh, dear. Or that you had a big nose. <laughs> well, the translator said something like, well, it's not like he's not fat, too. And so it's like, uh, <laughs> okay, whatever. He was a fat elk, and you were just a large elephant. I mean, an elephant is not fat. An elephant is merely large. <laughs> so, um, hey, um, can we um, swing back to um, that text, though? Because I, one of the things I thought that, he sets himself apart from um, from Mollison and uh, what's his name there, you know, right away, is in his willingness and his advocacy of using power tools, like big power tools, like using excavators. Mollison advocates the use of excavators. Well, okay, so um, the way Sepp is putting it forth there, he is – differentiating himself, that uh, some of the smaller scale stuff that he was reading about, it seemed like, anyway, I mean, that was his takeaway, that you couldn't be doing this by hand, you couldn't be doing this with a shovel, and that the needs of restoring the earth um, are sort of so great that you can't do this without machinery. And I think that's not entirely true, and this is when Julia will chime in and say, Julia, oh, come on, less plateau. Anyway, so, you know, where if you happen to have a whole bunch of Chinese available, and then you can put them to work and do all sorts of things. And, you know, you can, you know, be an Egyptian or an Egyptian slave and, you know, get a whole bunch of stuff done as well. But... um at least I, I thought it interesting that for Sep, that's a defining difference for him between what he's doing and what other people are doing. Now, it may not be an actual difference in the real world, but for Sep, that is a big difference. I don't know if Sep has ever written it, but I know I've heard him say it many times. And, that, and what Sep says is that it was big machinery 
that made the problem. So it will take big machinery to fix the problem. Um, yeah. Now, I think he says that after. I know he says it can't be done with a spade. And I think that Elliot makes a good point that it can be done with a spade. You just might need, you know, like a little bit of a barn raising effort of sorts. Yeah. You know, like a hundred people with a hundred spades. But at the same time, um, <clears throat> Mike Ayler, he built the first $50 house using a shovel. And he had no equipment up there. In fact, if you go to that spot, it's kind of like, yeah, you're not really going to get equipment up there. So um, I kind of feel like it can be done, but it'll be so much slower. I mean, if you've ever tried to do it with a shovel and a wheelbarrow and you worked at it for a few hours and then you bring in an excavator, wow. Like, an yeah. You know, an excavator is going to get done in an hour what might take me a couple of weeks to do. It's it's profound. So, um, I, I, I like the idea of saying something along the lines of the eighth of an acre thing, like what we were just talking about with Opalin, where that I think you get so much done. I mean, look at this picture here. There they are. They got their shovels out and they're doing shovely things. Um, so there is some truth to it. At the same time, there's that saying that uh, I want to say it was Shepard Ogden that said, um, machines help you do more, but experience less. Hmm. I, I think that there is something that's a little on the Zen side, a little, uh, possibly even a little purple that you get from when you do it with a shovel that you don't get when you do it with an excavator. Right. I have a quote here from page 14. Okay. So he says, humanity has spent generations on land consolidation, deforestation, regulating rivers, and draining and building canals and culverts. We cannot expect to undo all this with a spade. Big steps are asked for here. I, yeah. Um, and that's why I didn't mark it. As to read, I, I think that there is a lot of truth to it, but it's not absolutely true. Yeah. You get enough people together, you can get a lot done without. I, I remember there was a time when um, he was here in Montana. He was uh, over in White, White Fork. I think it was White Fork? Three Forks. He was in Three Forks. That's where it is. He, and, uh, and he was presenting to a group of like, 40 people, 50 people, something like that. And, and we're down in this kind of a little gully. And um, and I'm looking at my clock and I'm thinking, like, the next thing is already starting. And he needs to move over there and get to the next thing. And he's still going on here. And it's like, you know, 
all these other things are dependent on it and all these other people are waiting and I'm not even in charge of the event, but I'm getting kind of stressed out because the schedule is not being followed. And so then he says the thing about um, uh, how these problems cannot be solved without big equipment. And then he turns to me and he wants me to validate what he just said. And my answer was, at the moment, this is the Sepp Holzer show and not the Paul Wheaton show. So I think it's important that I don't take this in my direction. And I want to point out, we've got a little bit of a schedule problem. We need to be beep-bopping on up the path here to get to the next thing. And he got really pissed off at me. (laughs) I think he just expected me to say, but of course... The end. <laughs> I validate what this man just said. And in, instead, it's like, um, I've got some thoughts in this space, and you probably don't want to hear them. You'll say catastrophe. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, all right. So I, I have a, I do have a slightly different philosophy set than Sep when it, when it comes to, the big equipment. Although, hey, I own an excavator, and uh, uh, I'm a I'm a pretty mediocre excavator operator, and so um, I, you know, clearly I'm cool with using an excavator. And um, but I also kind of feel like I talk to a lot of people all the time, and a lot of people keep saying stuff like, "I can't do it because I don't have an excavator," and I. And I kind of feel like wow. you can do it. It'll just go slower. In fact, there's times when we've done stuff where it'd be easier to do with an excavator, but the excavator's either broken or it's like on the other property or and we can't get it here or whatever. So we just pull out the shovels and do it with the shovels. And because there's, you know, 11 of us all at once, it goes a lot faster than if there's just one of us. I don't know. I think there's a lot of times when the shovel, the shovel's grand. The shovel's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think it would be accurate to say that Seth Holzer is sort of stepping back? I mean, certainly he outgrew his original farm <laughs> and has stepped back to sort of be like looking at the entire world now and saying, oh, my gosh, this is a big place. You need a big equipment stack. Um, I mean, he's still using the big equipment, but I also know that he's out there with the shovel sometimes, too. So, but I do think that if, because I think the next thing is, is that there's a lot of people that want results right now. And as we look at this book and learn the amazing things that he has done, both in Portugal and in Spain and in other places, those were things that used the biggest equipment that you can get. And also, it's like just just the amount of money spent on equipment, probably in the realm of $4 million for one event. And so, um, I... And then if you tried to do that with human labor, um, it would have taken, I don't know... 
uh, I want to say, a hundred times longer, mm-hmm. you know, and it would probably even if and if you're going to pay those people, it's probably going to cost more than it than you spent on the on the equipment. So um, I I I feel like our society wants results and they want it now. And a cool thing with the, like the Tamara project in Portugal is that it took a couple of years to do it. So I think that's Portugal right there. I'm not sure, but I think it is. And uh, um, no, it says Ukraine, doesn't it? I'm wrong. No, it says Portugal. Oh, okay. So I just um, switched it over to Portugal. It was Ukraine before. Okay. So I think I think that there's that that for those people that want the big results and they want it fast, you're going to get the big equipment. And I think I and I think that there's a lot of people that are pushing back. Fukuoka pushed back. Um. Uh, I talked to Ernie Wisner, who was um, there when uh, Fukuoka and Mollison both came to the United States. They came to Ianto Evans's place in Coquille. And Ernie acted as a kind of a tour guide and stuff um, <clears throat> for these guys and um, got to hear the conversations between them. But the big thing was is that, um, uh, and I think Larry Korn was there as one of the translators, uh, but the big thing was Fukuoka felt like permaculture just has too much big equipment. He doesn't like it, all that big equipment. And um, uh, But Mollison and Holster both, uh, groove on the big equipment, no problems. So, um, did I, I we covered this thing about the big equipment now? Are we good? Yeah, yeah we think Yeah, I think I think Sep and, Sep and I think the same thing, but Sep says what he says because his mission is to get past the people that are trying to impede his work by complaining about the big equipment. Mm-hmm. So, and and I, I feel for that, man. Okay, what is Holzer's permaculture? Holzer's permaculture is creating landscapes while thinking ahead for generations. I kind of like that. I, 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 I do feel like permaculture is a big part of that. How do we... How do we get our foods to be our weeds, effectively? Above all, Holzer's permaculture means creating a hydrological balance. Holzer's permaculture is a symbiotic agriculture in harmony with nature, in cycles, and all-inclusive. And that's everything that I've got marked for what we've agreed to read today. Does anybody else have anything else to say about what we've read today? <laughs> I'm looking forward. I think he, uh, he talks about a lot of things like 
that I'm looking forward to in the rest of the book in this section. I really want to see what he do, what he does with wetlands, and because uh, I've seen a lot of these other things, but not a lot of what what is done on wetlands. Well, this is basically the introduction, right? Yeah. I mean, now now we're going to get in to the to the real substance. And um, and the magnificence. I have I, uh, unlike some people on this call, I have not read one speck beyond what we've agreed to read today. And so we'll leave that next week. But uh, I think this is I I'm I'm looking forward to this. Is this uh, format working for all of y'all? I like it. Yeah. yeah. And um, thank you, Kyle, for for showing us all these fun pictures as we do this. Um, I I think that this makes it very YouTubeable. Whereas I was a little worried that the last one we just had a single image show for the whole time we recorded it, and um, I I feel like that kind of made it not very YouTubeable. Yes, we need to make sure to when we talk about the pictures to describe what they are for the pod people. Right, we do well, about half the time. I, yeah, I, I think we do a little of that. All right. <clears throat> I think we're done. Are we got anything else to say? We got any other topics we want to talk about? I mean, this is the permaculture smackdown, right? Do we have any, any tough issues that we need to, that have come up in the last week that we need to, to, you know, give our, give the stink eye to or something? Uh, I think we can, I'm saving mine for another podcast. <laughs> I've got a big list. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Um, in that case, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about the mighty, the glorious, the amazing Sepulcher, homesteading, and permaculture. All, All the time. <laughs> Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.